Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Richard Tarnas, Rachel Lang, and host Michael Lerner. Well, friends, welcome. We're delighted to have you all with us. And I want to welcome Rick Tarnas and Rachel Lang. Um, Rachel Lang is a friend and colleague who's been guiding me into my new exploration of astrology. Uh, She's an astrologer and a psychic and um, very gifted and accomplished. We've done a spiritual biography with her, a session on her work, a session with her and Yvonne Tarnas, who's Rick's wife and is a Jungian therapist as well as an astrologer. Rachel and Yvonne work together on relationship work specifically. Uh, And Rick Tarnas uh, is uh, an extraordinarily uh, gifted uh, colleague. It turns out that one of the very first New School conversations we did was with Rick, and it was on Cosmos and Psyche. So, Rick, it's a joy to have you back, and uh, welcome back, and uh, Rachel, welcome back as well. Thanks so much, Michael. It's so great to be here with you both. Wonderful. Thank you. Likewise. Yeah, it's been been a few years since we've had our last conversation, but uh, um, as I was saying to you just beforehand, I I follow what you do uh, and the and I remember very much enjoying the conversation you had with Robert Bell on that um, when he uh, probably just a year or two before he passed away. That's correct. Yeah. And it was a wonderful conversation. Uh, Rick, uh, let me introduce you a bit. You're the founding director of the graduate program in philosophy, cosmology and consciousness at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. Uh, You had a Jesuit education, and at Harvard, you studied Western intellectual and cultural history. And then you lived and worked at Esalen in Big Sur for 10 years, studying with Stanislav Grof, Joseph Campbell, Gregory Bateson, Houston Smith, and James Hillman, you later serving as Esalen's director of programs and education. You got your PhD from Saybrook in 1976 with a dissertation on LSD psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, and spiritual transformation. From 1980 to 1990, you wrote the extraordinary uh, uh, book, The Passion of the Western Mind, a narrative of the history of Western thought from ancient Greeks to postmodern times. And then in 2006, you published the equally extraordinary and even more groundbreaking Cosmos and Psyche, which received the Book of the Year Prize from our friend David Lorimer at the Scientific and Medical Network in the UK. You're the former president of the International Transpersonal Association. You're on the board of the Young Institute in San Francisco. And in addition to teaching at the California Institute of Integral Studies, you lecture frequently at Pacifica Graduate Institute and uh, give many lectures in the U.S. and abroad. Um, And so um, with that introduction, I'd love to plunge most directly into the central question before us, which is, we are living in a period of immense transformation at Commonweal, 
we speak of living in the global poly crisis of environmental, social, technological, financial, economic disruptions. Uh, these global stressors are uh, interacting with increasing force and speed, creating future shocks of ever greater intensity. And the question of how we navigate this is fundamental and profound. Uh, not only for us collectively as a civilization, but it comes down to simple things like what is our narrative for ourselves or what do we say to our children about what uh, we are going through? How do we live in this time in the most creative uh, possible way? So, uh, you know, for the mainstream world to ask if astrology has something to contribute to this uh, is essentially a non-starter. Uh, but for those of us who live at the interface uh, between the archetypal world and the mainstream world, what Parker Palmer calls the tragic gap between uh, what is and what we would hope for, the question of what astrology offers is quite fundamental. It's something I've been uh, exploring with Rachel, who I, I am gr so grateful is with us today. But from your perspective, uh, from the astrological perspective, as you understand it, how do you understand what's what we're going through? Well, huge, uh, easy question uh, to start off with here. Um, I th first of all, I think in many ways, the crisis that we're going through, or polycrisis, as you uh, rightly described it, with, with so many different um, facets and dimensions to it, all of which are kind of converging in, in uh, the, the classic perfect storm kind of way. Uh, it's, it also could be seen as uh, being informed at a very deep level by a crisis of, of worldview, um, you know, a, a crisis of vision, uh, and not just one of mm, te technical fixes that aren't being implemented. Uh, certainly, Social, uh, political, economic forces are 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 all at work. Ecological, um, geological, biological uh, factors are are um, intensely in motion. And at the same time, one can see that informing all these and kind of driving these because of the tremendous uh, power of Homo sapiens, technologically empowered. Uh, in an industrial civilization on our our precious planet, because of that singular empowerment of one species, the um, basic structures of reality and the assumptions uh, that inform how our species, and particularly the most um, powerful members of the species, act towards the rest of the world, towards the rest of the Earth community, um, and conceive of, of the human being in relationship to um, the animate Earth or to the universe. All these are 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 deeply all those assumptions and principles uh, that inform our actions um, are, I think, in affecting what's happening. So if we can, I mean, the, the three of us here don't have our fingers on the levers of power directly uh, the way somebody in a um, very powerful multinational corporation uh, boardroom might be. 
political uh, administrations at the White House or elsewhere. We don't have that kind of power direct, but we all play a role in kind of rippling out into the world um, our our vision, our, our understanding of the world. And I think the archetypal cosmos that is seen as being um, and sold uh, as having uh, intelligence, as being meaningful through and through, uh, and also as having some relevance to this moving earth uh, and every individual and moment uh, of time that um, transpires on this earth. Ha uh, to have a vision of the of the cosmos that involves a more mm, embedded participatory relationship between the human being and the ensouled intelligent cosmos is a radical um, shift from the worldview that has basically dominated the mainstream modern mind over the last several hundred years, which is one of a kind of top-down um, you know, the human being is seen as being the most, uh, and perhaps by some even as the only uh, conscious, intelligent, purpose, purposeful uh, uh, being, the, the one who has the highest capacities in the entire known universe for moral and spiritual uh, aspiration and for uh, intellectual discernment and so forth. If, if your species thinks that it's the most, the, the summum bonum, the absolute top of the cosmic hierarchy, and that the world itself is lacking in the extraordinary capacities that human beings have for meaning and purpose and so forth. As Gregory Bateson said, um, if you model yourself on that particular posture, uh, you have a snowball's chance in hell. Of, of surviving the, um, the, the future because one, uh, one is so, uh, well, it's like a classic Greek tragedy of, of hubris and fall. Uh, and, we're, and I think that's basically one level of what we're going through. I, that doesn't solve the issue of, well, yes, maybe astrology affirms a, an intelligent and sold cosmos, um, but that doesn't make astrology uh, valid. Um, and so that's a, that's a separate issue. But if astrology can be shown to have validity um, through compelling correlations and, and so forth, uh, then that's a game changer as uh, Kenny Ossible of the Bioneer, of Bioneers likes to put it, it's a game changer. That's why he made this documentary series that uh, Rachel and I were associated with recently, um, Changing of the Gods. So um, it's a matter of, uh, of worldview to a great extent. Rachel, as you heard Rick uh, describe uh, our situation and, and uh, the role of astrology in our current crisis, what would you add to that? 
Yeah. Well, I think I think what Rick said absolutely. Uh, I love it. It's beautiful. And what I would add is that you know I think one of the values of astrology is that it really gives us a unified worldview. So kind of piggybacking on what Rick said. Um, you know, in uh, esoteric astrology, we were talking about this yesterday. Alice Bailey describes the um, that the whole universe is one collective psyche, and that we're all a part of that. And we can put this, you know, the in astrology we have the saying "as above, so below," which is a hermetic part of the hermetic uh, uh, concept and, and text. And, and we can even look at this in, like, I like to look at the way that we're related to the universe and the way that we're related to the planets and the stars and the motion of the heavenly bodies and even other galaxies and other, other anything that we can see, any light that comes into our atmosphere, we're connected to. And one way that I like to kind of relate that, to put it into really practical terms, is the human body. We have all of these millions of microorganisms that exist in our gut that we don't see. We have every single body part is connected to everything else. So if you have a toothache up here, it's connected to a meridian that goes to your heart. So nothing in our physical bodies or physical symptoms can exist separate from the system, from the, from the entirety of the system. And that's how I see us with astrology. And everything in our environment has an astrological correspondence. If you go out in your garden, you can look at every single plant has some kind of relates to some kind of temperament, some kind of planetary ruler. Um, and so when we when we open ourselves to uh, to understanding astrology, to incorporating it into our daily lives, we are connecting to the earth, to one another to the stars, to everything in created reality. And that changes our relationship with power. Um, you used the word polycrisis and, um, and Elizabeth Schusler Fiorina um, is a theologian. And um, um, I can't remember what, where, what, what book um, I read this in, but she uses the concept of kiriarchy. She says, we're not in a patriarchal culture. We're not, we're in a kiriarchal uh, culture structure, which is really like a hierarchical model of power. And it, and this is what has been the prevailing paradigm for us. And, um, and we are at a point right now um, where Pluto, which is the planet that relates to power and power systems, where Pluto is getting ready to move into Aquarius in just a, a next year, actually, it starts making that ingress. And so all power structures are up for renewal and reinvention and rebirth, which means that over the next couple of years, because Pluto takes, it, it, it goes into Aquarius next year and then it retrogrades back into Capricorn. And then in 2024, it's, it's fully in Aquarius for, for quite some time. And, and so we're going to be rethinking power. And, um, and, uh, and, and I think that that is going to be how we, uh, how we explore solutions for, um, for, for healing the planet, for healing one another. Um, and I love another thing that Rick said, which was, 
that um, that you know that uh, that that astrology just uh, that 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 astrology gives us it like gives us an archetypal language to understand where we are and um, and how we're relating to one another, and so I think that it can be really useful for bringing us back into relationship with our bodies, bringing us back into relationship with the earth and really helping to uh, find ways to, to develop solutions for some of the power structures that have been so out of balance that have led to all of this, um, you know, the crises that we see. Thank you, Rachel. And Rick, in, in Cosmos and Psyche, um, uh, you you talk about the planetary conjunctions of the axial age, and you, if I understand correctly, you suggest that uh, we may be approaching a similar period to that period five hundred years ago. Do I have do I have that right? It's it's close to it. Um, you know, just to clarify, the what's called the axial uh, era um, mm-hmm. is. An historic, the historical period uh, in the first millennium BCE that uh, brought about the sudden emergence uh, in civilizations right across the world of enormous um, philosophical and religious uh, kind of revolutions and revelations that gave birth to uh, Buddhism, um, uh, the Hinduism that we know coming out of the uh, Upanishads and Bhagavad Gita, Judaism, and the understanding of deity that came out of the uh, from the prophets, uh, the Greek philosophers, and so forth, Taoism, Confucianism, and China. And this wave was something that particularly uh, was the heart of that took place in the sixth century BCE when Confucius and uh, the, the Buddha and the first Greek philosophers like Pythagoras and Thales, the Hebrew prophets, uh, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Second Isaiah, etc. All, all these just uh, at, the, at the same moment, um, more or less, lived, uh, had their, inf- their their impact, and we are still, in certain ways, uh, informed by the spiritual cognitive uh, uh, transformations that took place at that time. And what's extraordinary, well, we were talking about Bob Robert Bella and his great book, Religion and Human Evolution at the beginning here. And um, I just got done teaching a course at CIS graduate seminar on religion and human evolution, which is completely focused on the evolution that leads up to the axial era. It's an incredible book, Mm -hmm. as you uh, know. And uh, what's remarkable uh, is that right in the sixth century BCE, there was a, a, a triple conjunction of the outer three planets that we know as Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, that, that happened, it's the only triple conjunction. They were all within two degrees of exact alignment. Um, it's the only triple conjunction of those planets in recorded history. Um, and what Cosmos and Psyche tra- tracked out is that, it, as, as or traced out, is as you look through all the um, centuries of, of history, every time any two of those planets came into major uh 
conjunction or opposition, you know, the, the axial alignments as, as we call them, they, um, they coincided with, uh, extraordinary cultural transformations that are reflective of the archetypal meanings that astrologers came to, not on the basis of looking back at earlier centuries of these alignments, because we didn't have the computers and so forth to do so, but rather on the basis of, this is in the um, 19th and uh, 20th century earlier, they um, they came to the understanding of those meanings through studying birth charts and studying the transits of those planets to the birth charts. And then when we then traced back in history, when those planets came into major alignments, it's like the sequence of uh, all the major um, the political social revolutions like the 1960s or the uh, French Revolution, et cetera, coincided with the Uranus-Pluto cycle. While all the great um, spiritual awakenings, births of new religion and so forth, um, uh, cultural renaissances took place under the Uranus-Neptune um, cycle. Well, when the, there was this one time when all three of them converged. And uh, that was in uh, the 6th century BCE. And remarkably, all these historical trends converged at that time, uh, uh, you know, kind of had a, an axial moment, a seminal uh, birthing of, uh, of impulses that we're still working through. Now, um, so that was 2,500 years ago. And today, we don't have, this, we don't have the exact same uh, alignments um, by any means. There's two things going on. It's a, uh, one, it, but we are going through alignments right now. Uh, I won't go into all the technical details that are related to particularly what happened at the birth of the modern era 500 years ago. And um, which is a very major transformational shift in, in itself, needless to say. And this is a, an extraordinary opportunity, even though a whole era is dying, clearly a whole identity is going through a kind of dying right now. But um, that is always necessary before a birth can take place, before a, 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 the emergence of a new um, mode of consciousness, a new way of being in the world, uh, etc. A new sense of identity, how we identify ourselves in relationship to the cosmos, to each other, etc., to the earth. So um, we're at a pivotal moment that has a great deal to do with what happened um, several hundred years ago at the birth of the modern, but in relationship to the first axial era, this picks up on, on a point that Thomas Berry and, and Ewart Cousins focused on, is are we on the verge of a second axial era? And um, that argument, and in a sense, prophetic vision that they each were carrying, uh, had to do with the idea that the first axial era brought forth all these religions and philosophies that developed crucial insights and moral and spiritual capacities that we still have with us now, but they each did it in kind of individuated ways, particular going in their different directions, separate from each other. Also, there was a tendency towards the transcendent and leaving the imminent, putting the focus on 
liberation from the physical world or getting beyond the world of sensory appearances and the uh, prison of the body uh, for in favor of the soul or a posthumous uh, life with God um, after leaving this valley of veil of tears, or uh, this is a world of Maya versus the true uh, reality, which is uh, Brahman and so forth. And so um, what uh, the idea of the second axial era is what um, Thomas Berry and your cousins framed for us to understand that what's necessary now is one for all those different religious and um, philosophical um, movements and, and traditions to come into a relationship with each other, a, a, a dialogical relationship where they recognize that each one has absolutely valuable insights that the others need and that we need. Um, but in addition, they said, besides this horizontal um, change from the original axial, uh, uh, first axial era, we also need a reconnection with the earth and with the, um, the great uh, indigenous spiritual traditions that ha ha carried this uh, recognition of the sacredness of the earth and our relationship to an, to an earth community rather than, um, you know, the human being is being exclusively the one that's made in God's image. And therefore we have a, you know, a unique divine um, superiority over everything else. So they wanted both this kind of vertical reconnection to the earth and to the uh, recognition of the importance of the primal uh, in indigenous um, uh, spiritual traditions, wisdom traditions, but also this more, um, this coming into a, a dialogical, multicultural, um, uh, pluralistic recognition that no one system, no one religion, no one philosophy, including modern science, uh, has nailed down the absolute final truth about reality. And that, that delusion that one of them is totally superior to all the rest, uh, is 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 a part of our part of part of our problem right now you're listening to a tns conversation with richard tarnas rachel lang and host michael lerner thank you for correcting me on the axial age thing and what i was conflating it with was what you mentioned about the uh, the turning point of the birth of the individual in this period of time, you know, the 500 year thing. But and you say this period is astrologically similar to that period uh, at the birth of the, of the individual and so forth. Is that correct? Well, the emergence of a new level of individuation that particularly yeah. happened with modernity. Yes. I mean, individuality Right. Uh, was right. nurtured was, um, all along. But, uh, but in terms of uh, Thomas Berry's great vision of a new axial age, uh, is there, do you see astrological, if the, if the axial age was in fact astrologically different from the present age, do you see astrological uh, resonance 
for Barry's idea of a new axial age in the different astrological configuration that you're seeing now? Um, we're in a long-term process. No, no second axial age is going to emerge uh, tomorrow unless I'm um, happily mistaken. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it, uh, I remember Jung talking about how, um, you know, uh, it, the kind of tr- spiritual transformation and psychological transformation he saw at work was going to require centuries. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure that's true. But uh, there's another factor that's come into the picture. Um, I, I could go into the specific sequence of powerful world transits that we've been through over the, the last decade um, and kind of climaxing in these last two or three years that are very, let's just say, um, they, tend to, they, they tend to correlate with periods of, of tremendous crisis and transformation and breakdown of all old structures and uh, a kind of um, tr- uh, tension of opposites between the past and the future really at, uh, uh, coming into a um, tumultuous uh, turning point that requires a great deal of courage and imagination uh, to, to uh, navigate our way through. That said... Um, Excuse me, Rick. I think it would be useful if you actually referenced what those astrological configurations are. Okay, sure. So we, we've just been through, uh, this will be of, of interest to the people who are astrologically initiated here in, in the audience. Um, so we, the Uranus-Pluto um, cycle, which we, our last conjunction of Uranus and Pluto, Uranus tends to coincide with uh, or relate to the archetypal um, impulse for uh, radical change, sudden um, unexpected events. It's got a trickster quality to it, very creative, very rebellious, um, uh, fast moving. Um, It's a Promethean uh, uh, rebel against the old gods, liberating an impulse for liberation, but also for um, disruption. Okay, so that is in alignment. uh, That cycle we have just been through the next major, what's called hard aspect alignment or dynamic alignment, the square between Uranus and Pluto, the first one since the 60s. And that took place between the square that we're just coming out of took place roughly between about 2007 and, and 2020. And during that period, um, you know, many, many things from, you know, Having a, a, a black president uh, uh, elected, uh, having uh, you know, whether it's um, the Me Too movement, the Black Black Lives Matter movement, the the um, the uh, per, uh, this Arab Spring, um, but also things like the Trump phenomenon, uh, Trumpism, and uh, and the um, rise of dictator uh, authoritarian. Uh, um, forces in in the world. This all relates to the Uranus Pluto combination because Pluto relates, as Rachel said, to the to power, to the will will to power. But it's also the deep evolutionary driving instinctual forces that uh, inform all of nature and its 
constant death and rebirth cycles. And you get that kind of volcanic intensity combined with the Uranus uh, Promethean uh, change rebel uh, creativity archetype. And it's, uh, it tends to be very volatile periods, also tremendous technological uh, advance, um, but a lot of change that's very difficult to keep up with. So that was all, all happening. But just as it's ending, just as we get to like 2019, 2020, Saturn comes into the mix in conjunction with Pluto. And so we had a Saturn-Pluto conjunction, which is one of the most, um, that coincides with periods of great historical contractions. Um, like the last Saturn-Pluto opposition was when 9-11 and the uh, invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan work on terror, et cetera. Uh, the, um, it's, it, both world wars started under the, uh, under the Saturn-Pluto hard aspects, um, very tight alignments with in both cases 1914 1939 the series of cold war contractions uh all happen in with that cycle uh 1946 to 48 onwards and so um that are the the covid crisis the, that pandemic uh was a huge thing the greater sense of isolation of dealing with uh, death on a huge scale confronting mortality but then as if those two weren't enough saturn also comes into the square to uranus uh and um that was last year um, that that and that's that started last year um e even a bit in 2020 but particularly 2021 it comes in and we're really cooking 2021 and 2022 with that saturn square uranus mm -hmm. and that's where that's a period typically of great, I mentioned the conflict between um, past and uh, future, the old and the new, also between conservative and, and uh, progressive forces is very strong. A tendency for the status quo uh, structures to suddenly be pushed to a breaking point. So there's kind of like uh, crises that tend to happen, um, breakdown of infrastructures, uh, um, and also the possibility of bringing all, all, all three of these alignments of these cycles of these archetypal combinations have, while they tend to coincide with challenging events, they also coincide with the potential for um, uh, tremendously life enhancing responses. Uh, for example, the Saturn-Uranus combination that we're in has a lot to do with basically the possibility of fundamentally restructuring um, uh, society and restructuring our, our understanding of reality, for example. Going through a crisis that involves the collapse of an old structure, but, uh, but also the... I mean, the, the challenge is not to fall totally into throwing out the old um, and losing all constraints, but also not to get fixed in, a, um, in the status quo in a way which is going to eventually break. And so we have to 
solve that tension of opposites that Jung was always talking about. We have to um, hold that tension, um, be faithful to both sides in their in their best form, and then by holding that, we can sometimes be, as Marie Louise von Franz put it, we can sometimes be the vessel within which the divine brings forth a creative birth that comes out of those two opposing uh, principles, uh, those tendencies, the the creative third, and and we, you you can't just um, construct it. It 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 has to emerge with a kind of it's a it's a living birth that we don't quite know what form it's going to take, but it does. We do know what it takes from us, which is a lot of um, fortitude and uh, discernment and um, imagination and, and compassion. That's really helpful, Rick. I'm glad you you took us in, into the specifics there. Rachel, you've been really reflecting on this. We've been talking about it. What would you add to what Rick has said here? Well, I think first, before I add anything, I'd like to just take a step back for those who don't know astrology. And, sure. you know, we're talking a lot about these astrological cycles. And so I wanted to just kind of paint a broad brushstroke about astrological cycles. So when, so, you know, with the planets are, are always moving um, and, and they, they, they orbit around the sun and that, and we see them from our perspective here on earth and astrological cycles repeat themselves. So this is one of the beautiful things about astrology is that we can look back at different times when these cycles have taken place, when two planets come together and form a new synodic cycle, when they, and, and anytime there's two planets are coming together and particularly outer planets, which move slower, there's, there is like a, a new chapter, a new storyline. And so I look at every astrological transit as a story and what is, what is happening? What, where's the story going to take us? And, um, and so, uh, and so two planets coming together starts a new synodic cycle and those two planets have, uh, have their own meaning. Um, you know, the symbolism of astrology, each planetary symbol has so many different layers of meaning and layers of context. And so we can see themes that play out from the past and that informs us for what's happening right now and what's happening in the future. And so within every synodic cycle, there is, we see symbolically represented the challenges of that cycle and the opportunities and the possibilities because every outer planet has evolutionary themes. It has soul growth themes. And we can see this in our personal lives when we go through outer planet transits, which can last up to two, three years. Um, big shifts that are taking place in our lives, but we can also see that in the world and see that happening on a global stage. And so, um, and so it's, you know, in really from in 2020, we had several, we had three different synodic cycles. We had uh, Pluto and Saturn, as Rick mentioned, coming together. And Pluto is power. Uh, Pluto is also the, the, the cycles of regeneration and death and, and rebirth. It's the breaking down of the old and the restructuring of the new. And Saturn being those structures, being the structures of what, what limiting beliefs do we hold as a culture and how are we going to reshape those? 
actually, it, it manifested literally. This is what's so cool about astrology is that we saw statues being taken down. And statues, Saturn is very concrete in its, in its meaning and its symbolism. And so we saw laws being restructured. We saw uh, you know, the, the, the criminal justice system being re-explored with the legalization of marijuana and uh, a, a real hard look at the war on drugs. And so we saw a lot of that, like Saturn and Pluto coming together shows us what needs to break, break down and what needs to be restructured. And then we had Pluto and Jupiter coming together and Jupiter is our faith. So Saturn and Jupiter both represent the collective ideas and how they play out in our personal lives and families and relationships. And then we also had Saturn and Jupiter coming together. So we had a lot of these really big new beginnings. And we are now in the, in the process of rebuilding re, 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 uh, back better, <laughs> reestablishing our sense of what we want moving forward. And so I think, you know, Rick mentioned that this is the time for collective imagination. And it really is uh, because we know the symbolism of these planets. We know all of the, I mean, every transit represents a spectrum of possibilities. And so when we can read the symbolism, know the symbolism, we can look at what possibilities we want to create and come together to do that. You know, Rachel and Rick, you both know this. Um, I, I wouldn't be in this inquiry into astrology if, if a good friend hadn't given me a reading with Rachel and I had such a powerful time with it that we began talking. And and um, and so for me, uh, astrology has been a, a real struggle in this sense. I'm a very, I've spent my life on frontiers of knowledge and mind, body, health, environmental health, uh, and, uh, and sort of the nature of the universe. And I've said to both of you, I can totally understand psi phenomena like uh, telepathy and clairvoyance and things like that. I can absolutely get the reality of UFOs. I've spent years looking at Enneagram now, and I think it's an extraordinarily descriptive character system. Um, uh, you know, there are many things that are easy for me to understand. I get Tarot. I get the I Ching. I get the incredible power of these um, uh, symbolic structures. Uh, and as Jung said, they're often signs as well as symbols. Um, but the idea that, and, and I, so I totally get that astrology is an incredibly rich symbol structure. And it's a structure of incredible stories that we've been curating, uh, memes that we've been curating for thousands of years for their power. And so when you ask for a reading and are prepared to hear something that will have meaning, and somebody gives you one of these incredibly powerful stories, it catalyzes between us, oh yes, that's me, that makes sense. And so it's in that way, it's like an I Ching reading or a Tarot reading, which at least theoretically are random. I mean, not that they are random, maybe the universe is in fact constellating them, but theoretically they're random. Um, so if I look at astrology that way, 
which to me finds some support in the fact that different astrological traditions give you different readings. So whether it's the Western tradition or the Vedic tradition or other traditions, past and present, they don't all say exactly the same thing. So uh, the idea, number one, that I should give more veridical power to the specific powerful archetypes that are tied to my birthday, number one. And number two, that I should privilege Western psychology above Vedic, uh, Western astrology above Vedic uh, or above other astrologies that have existed. Why should I believe that this particular large branch of astrology uh, connects more deeply than all the others. So then when I get to an incredible book like Cosmos and Psyche, or the equally incredible and important book, which I think is important to understand Cosmos and Psyche, uh, Rick and Sean Kelly's book, Psyche Unbound, Essays in Honor of Stanislav Grab, which tell us that the psychedelic research that Graf did, uh, Rick and Stan Graf discovered that it correlated, that the nature of the experience that different people had correlated with the transits that they were going through. So that's, those two things remain mind boggling to me. And, and I can easily accept them as a cultural anthropologist just at the sheer beauty of the system if I'm not looking for its veridical value. But if I'm looking for its veridical value, I'm still challenged uh, uh, in creative ways. I think it's taking me deeper. It's taking me into a mystery that I don't understand. Now, this morning, I looked again at Cosmos and Psyche, and I found some beautiful passages that are helping me move in that direction. But I'm still challenged as we talk. And Rick, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. These are these are great questions to have, uh, Michael. And um, they're certainly ones that that Stan Groff and I faced when we first encountered the evidence, because it, it while we knew that Jung took astrology very seriously and we had a lot of respect for Jung. Uh, we didn't know that much about you know how he had um, explored it. And even though we were at at Esalen, which is in the, this is the 1970s and you know it was very much a, a center of incredible range of of different ways of understanding the world and different practices, ancient and modern, shamanic and uh, scientific and so forth, but uh, astrology was kind of the last paradigm that we took seriously uh, for for similar reasons to what you're you're talking about. It's one thing to get a tarot uh, reading or or uh, the I Ching. There you can see it in terms of a kind of synchronistic divinatory process, but. Um, Astrology, as Jung put it, could be understood as like synchronicity on a vast cosmic scale that is constantly on, ongoing. That's a whole nother ballgame. 
And um, I mean, the first step was to, uh, Stan said, well, if we don't think of it in terms of the planets causing things to happen in a kind of Newtonian, Cartesian, mechanistic, linear uh, causal form, but rather that um, that the cosmos uh, is panpsychic, as many philosophers are and, and even scientists are, are coming to recognize, uh, and that um, meaning and purpose are uh, go th- right through and through the entire system, uh, cosmos and psyche, above and below, human, etc. Um, that that gets us if we get move into this m- more this idea of as uh, Plotinus put it, it's not that the planets are causing things to happen. It's that um, they uh, are uh, symbolic of the deeper archetypal dynamics that are happening within the soul of the cosmos. And uh, as he put it, the world is full of signs and symbols uh, and um, everything is interconnected. And then he said, everything breathes together. And I think that's a beautiful understanding of it. Everything's breathing together now, but that doesn't solve the problem of, well, why the kind of astrology that, you know, has incorporated um, the outer, the the outer planets that has uh, uh, the the Western astrological tradition with its connection to Greco-Roman mythology and the the names of the planets that the astronomers have given, et cetera. And I think the key to that is, first of all, recognizing that the cosmos is so richly uh, meaningful through and through that no one interpretive um, uh, system is, uh, or symbol system has the last word. And that there are multiple um, entrees into this mystery and that they, can be seen basically as different languages um, that, uh, you know, you, you, the, the three of us here are speaking English and English is spectacularly helpful for us here and those listening to us in conveying you know, all sorts of meanings and nuances and multidimensional uh, uh, understandings and so forth. Um, but, and, and you could say, well, we're privileging it and using it, but uh, above other languages, but we're not doing so in a way that is intrinsically denying uh, potential value to uh, Sanskrit or Spanish or, or, or Mandarin or, or German. Um, uh, and it's, it's, um, by the way, Vedic and, and Western astrology are deeply related. I mean, they, they share uh, those symbols are uh, the planetary meanings um, uh, are, are very much shared. So Vedic up until recently hadn't integrated the outer planets. Um, but uh, the differences between Vedic and, you know, because they, they have a common origin about 2,200 years ago or so. But um, the difference between uh, Vedic and Western astrology has a great deal to do with the cultural um, context within which it, it developed and evolved. Uh, and we see that in the difference between the Indian 
sense of personal identity versus typical Western sense of personal identity and so forth. Uh, so uh, that just as every language um, is shaped by the, the cultural evolution that it's embedded in, so is that true of every astrological tradition. Um, so I think it's, it's helpful to see that we are, um, the archetypes are transcultural. They can manifest in, in different ways in every different culture, but they still are faithful to their, their, their essence. This is what mythologists uh, always talk about, in terms, like Joseph Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces, or there's a goddess with a thousand faces. Um, the Aphrodite principle takes one form in Hawaii and another form in in uh, uh, in Greece. Um, the, the the Promethean trickster is different; it takes one embodiment in Africa, but is also present in uh, Navajo traditions and so forth. So these archetypes are transcultural, but they are inflected in uh, through different cultural mythologies in different ways. And um, so Western astrology has developed um, certain capacities, partly through its own uh, uh, mythic uh, traditions, partly through its, its uh, psychological and cultural developments that allow us to see, perceive, discern um, symbolic realities in, in a way that many, many astrologers of considerable intelligence find a lot of uh, very, very valuable. Uh, it's not that this tradition exhausts all possible uh, me meanings. Uh, there, there's many ways in which the universe speaks to us. Each of us is a flowering of the universe, and we we each have a, an original relationship to the to the universe, as uh, Emerson said. And we um, we we in cultivating our particular path, our particular language, our particular practices and interpretive traditions, um, keeping open to to others and being enriched by others, but at the same time being faithful to our own flowering. I mean, we are the cosmos, each of us as an individual and each culture is a, is a flowering of the cosmos. So we each have a potential authentic um, participation in that divine mystery. And, and we each can become a vessel of the self-revelation of the universe and of the anima mundi, the world soul through each of us. That's beautiful. Rachel, what are your reflections? Yeah, I love, I love that. I just want to take in those words for a minute and, um, and the blossoming, like how we are each the blossoming of, the, of the, really the potentiality of our charts and our charts are a snapshot of what was happening in the universe at the moment of our birth. Um, and so I, I love, I'm loving this conversation. Um, I want to add a couple more, a couple things. And first of all, I think the field of quantum, uh, quantum physics it really kind of uh, gives us a new framework for understanding astrology. And I'm, I, I've, I've mentioned in the last, in the last couple of conversations, I'm not a physicist, um, so I don't. I, this is an area that I, I, I I'm going to stay in my lane. I'm an astrologer, but one of the things that's so fascinating to me about it is the way that we can see that we have that that, that all atoms 
have, par have parallels and they're in correlated pairs. And so if we think about the Big Bang, that moment when 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 the when the you know our solar system was formed, we are all carrying that moment, stardust in our bodies, in our systems, and so how we we don't have the science yet to understand the ways in which we're connected to everything in the Earth, and the ways in which I mean, what's what's so amazing. Um, about astrology is that that you can look at a certain transit that's happening and see potential health challenges that are manifesting in your physical body. And so this is something I've thought a lot about also thinking about fate and free will and 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 some of those things like how much do we have agency over what happens in our lives. And um and I think that uh that that knowing astrology and understanding this language um, gives us an ability to uh, to uh, to really be conscious about what changes we're making and what's happening in our lives. Um, there's one other thing I wanted to bring into this conversation too, and that is um, the sacredness of mathematics, harmony, the the principles of harmonics that underlie so much of what we understand about astrological transits and the relationship of the of the planets. And I once heard a lecture in Italy, um, and I was speaking at a conference there, and I heard um, it was a, um, a, a woman who was, who was a physicist, and she was talking about how it was theorized that the ancient Babylonians could predict with certainty the movement of the, of the planets because they could relate the motion of the planets to the songs that they were singing. And, uh, and, you know, I think the study of astrology shows us there is this sacred geometry, the sacred mathematics that works with light. Because when we're talking about astrology, we're talking about the interplay of light. And the most dramatic interplay of light that we see is the lunation cycle. Um, but that's happening with all planets and with the earth all the time. And, um, and so I think that that's another way that we can understand, even if we don't have the science to back it up, I think that there's, there's something there with the, way, um, with the way light works in our physical bodies and light works with the earth. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Richard Tarnas, Rachel Lang, and host Michael Lerner. Yes, Rachel, I agree that that uh, quantum physics uh, and just the, what we're beginning to understand about the physics of the universe really does resonate with a lot of the things we're talking about. And also sacred mathematics. Um, uh, I have a friend and colleague, Walter Murch, who's a filmmaker, but he's uh, he's uh, written about the sort of renewal of Bodhi's law, which is about the harmony of the spheres and actually has um, uh, there's a book about his work that you can actually listen to the sound that the different uh, yeah. planets make, you know, uh, so there's much richness in both of those comments. Um, uh, Rick, you know, I first in preparing, I first read Passion of the Western Mind again and then Cosmos and Psyche, but then I ordered 
your extraordinary book, Psyche Unbound, The Essays in Honor of Stanislav Grof. And as somebody who was kind of schooled in political philosophy, yeah, Kira just put up my conversation with Walter Murch there. Uh, and by the way, friends, if you want to ask questions, please do put them in the chat. And we'll try to get to them. Um, but I had the feeling as somebody who studied political philosophy for a long time, uh, one of the things that's true, and I think in almost all ages, is the, the danger of telling the truth in public. Uh, you know, this is well known. And in ancient times, you could easily get killed for it. Now you get crucified on the Internet or whatever. Uh, you can still get killed in many parts of the world. But what a lot of political philosophers or philosophers have done or scientists is they've hidden parts of their findings in ways in, in plain sight. <laughs> so I wondered when you wrote Cosmos and Psyche, whether in some ways you restrained yourself and then published Psyche Unbound separately because I understood Cosmos and Psyche better by reading Psyche Unbound. And because Psyche Unbound was about the LSD research and Stan Groff's seminal work. Uh, in, in, and you basically argue that in addition to the royal road of dreams that Freud and Jung brought to the unconscious, that, that Groff, uh, through his psychedelic research, had, had opened up a whole new and incredibly important uh, uh, form of access to the unconscious, to the whole Jungian tradition, uh, and that the systematic nature of his research, uh, both on uh, both on the transits, but more specifically, all of his work on on the birth trauma and its key role, and and the different layers of the unconscious that people on LSD went through, that this was incredibly important to the history of psychology, the study of the unconscious, but also to your cosmic speculation. So the last addendum I want to put under that, there are many fascinating essays in here, but there's an essay by John Buchanan on Groff and uh, Alfred North Whitehead, uh, making the argument that Groff and Whitehead shared a similar cosmology. And uh, I know that our mutual friend, Rupert Sheldrake, lectures on Whitehead. And so I haven't looked into that in depth, but I wanted to ask you how central to your own understanding of Groff uh, is, is the Whitehead essay and how seriously do you take Whitehead as a kind of a philosophical credible bridge uh, to the new cosmology? Yeah, I, I take uh, Whitehead very, very seriously. He's a, he's a, major pillar of the philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness program at our, uh, at, at CIS where I teach. Um, and actually the person who's been kind of Rupert uh, Sheldrake's mentor with Whitehead is, is Matt Siegel, who mm -hmm. teaches in the um, uh, philosophy, cosmology, and consciousness program. And he's actually, besides um, connecting uh, Sheldrakean um morphic fields and and uh his his whole understanding with uh 
with Whitehead's philosophy. Not only has he done that, but um, Matt Siegel uh, is also connecting it, uh, the, the Whiteheadian process philosophy, because he works closely with John Cobb and, and that um, the process philosophy world. Uh, he also has uh, connected it to the psychedelic research, as does John Buchanan. Uh, we're all we all know each other and have worked with each other over the years. Um, for those who are interested in um, Matt Siegel's extraordinary work, it's S-E-G-A-L-L. And his um, wonderful um, website is called Footnotes to Plato. Um, footnotes and then two as a numeral uh, and then Plato.com. And he actually, uh, you may, I'm sure you know the, where, what he's picking up on footnotes to Plato is the excerpt of the quotation by Whitehead, uh, where he said, Alfred North Whitehead, Whitehead says that it would not be an exaggeration to say that the entire history of Western philosophy is a series of footnotes to Plato. Yes, um, I knew that quote. Yeah, yeah, it's a favorite. So that's what, that's the website's name. Um, uh and in terms of Rachel's point about uh, quantum physics, those who are interested, um, Will Keepen, who is a quantum physicist as, uh, as, as well as a, an activist in gender healing, he um, does a, a marvelous ex exploration or explanation in terms of the connections with David Bohm's work uh, of astrology with, with David Bohm's work, with, with quantum physics, and it's... Uh, uh, chaos theory and so forth, and it's in um, the la the tenth episode of of Changing of the Gods, the the series that uh, documentary series that's about to come out in a month, I think, uh, on the the different streaming services. Changing of the Gods. Your direct question to me, Michael, about was I holding something back? Was I doing the classic Pythagorean keep certain things secret, you know, until it, the time is ripe or whatever, lest I get um killed or booed off the stage or whatever that was copernicus's line uh, booed off the stage he he held back for you know 30 years for, with the heliocentric uh hype uh theory publication and um you know i i i de one always has to gauge the moment and the audience etc so i decided to publish passion of the western mind first and spent a decade writing that because it would be like a history of Western thought that I wanted to be able to set out, like, where did we get the idea of archetypes? How did Plato's view of archetypes evolve to Jung's view? What happened? How did we move into a disenchanted cosmos in the course of the modern period? Um, and uh, that became uh, a kind of, it, it became a, a text that's, that's used in a lot of universities, but it was a kind of Trojan horse uh, in terms of I ultimately had in mind that was just going to be the intro to cosmos and psyche. Now the question is, well, why did I do cosmos and psyche focused on the big historical world transit, historical correlations, rather than on the psychedelic um, correlations, which was the origin of the of the kind of astrological uh, breakthrough for Stan and me. And we Stan definitely was wanting me to bring what's now in Psyche Unbound, uh, that that essay. He wanted me to 
uh, publish a book on that back in the 70s. But I felt the time wasn't right then because people could, well, even Stan recognized that psychedelics were already, LSD and psychedelics at that point were as controversial as anything, except for maybe astrology. And so to use astrology or psychedelics to reinforce each other was not a winning proposition at that point. We're in a different place right now. The, this, this a psychedelic renaissance is taking place. Thank God it got delayed 50 years. Uh, I mean, thank God that it's happening now because for 50 years it was tragically delayed by um, ignorance and, and uh, uh, fear and so forth. And um, so we're in a different place where the psychedelic, the value of psychedelic therapy is widely recognized, you know, through help, helping veterans with MDMA uh, assisted therapy for PTSD or ketamine for depression and all sorts of things. It's a, it's a, it's a new world. And so I felt more at ease in showing the, showing my hand. Okay. It, it goes back to the psychedelic research is that's when we first noticed the correlations and the power of, of, of astrology. As Stan said, um, you know, astrology's turned out to be a Rosetta stone of the human psyche, much to our shock because it it's, it's as controversial as, uh, as psychedelics, but um, we weren't going in that direction, but a lot of times spiritual mysteries hide in the most uh, obvious places uh, and we, we, we don't see them just like we don't see the, the stars during the day uh, because the sun, so the sun of S-U-N, the sun of the solar reason, you know, rationality blots out the, the, the deeper multiplex mystery of, of, of the night sky, uh, of, the, of the soul of, of the cosmos and that coming together of night and day of sun and moon um, is uh, kind of what it's all about right now. That's very helpful to me, Rick, uh, because I didn't know the whole story. I'm amazed that you could plan that far in advance for all three volumes. So that speaks uh, uh, volumes for your your uh, uh, ability to think this out. But indeed, uh, for those who uh, enjoy Cosmos and Psyche, uh, I would commend this book of essays, Psyche Unbound, uh, because I think it's very helpful. There's Rachel, great essays in there also by Joseph Campbell and Houston yeah. Smith and Fritjof um, Capra and so forth. That's a, yeah, that's a, a fabulous collection. Rachel, uh, at one point in Cosmos and Psyche, uh, 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 Rick uh, talks about how, how the ancients figure this out in the first place. And his line is something like, by some combination of empirical study and divination. Mm -hmm. right? Now, you are not only an extremely gifted astrologer, but you are a, a, a psychic, a, a, an intuitive, beyond simply intuitive, a psychic. And... Um, you have had that gift uh, most of your life. Um, when you do astrological readings, uh, is your psychic eye continuously engaged with the process 
In other words, you helped me download some software that now I can do charts, you know, and what I look at when I look at the software, there are like a zillion different interpretations and they all go in different directions, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the conversations you and I have had is, you know, of these 20 or 30 different uh, uh, correlations, relationships, which are the ones that you select out, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I can imagine that anybody who was intuitive and connected with the person they were reading for might use intuition to help select. But if one is psychic as well as intuitive, that raises the question of whether the psychic eye is engaged for you when you're doing a reading. And I've never quite asked you that. I'm curious about it. Yeah, that's a good question. One of my uh, early mentors, he was so adamant. I am not intuitive. I am mathematical. This is what, and this is why I do astrology. And I think, you know, because astrology is a language of symbols and symbols as Rick so eloquently writes is they're multivalent. They're so they're they're complex. They give us a whole range of meaning, and so you don't have to be psychic or or intuitive to look at keywords. The keywords associated with the different planets and the different signs and the different houses and aspects. Um, you can kind of you know any anyone can anyone can 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 do this. I have a hard time separating my uh, like my mathematical astrology brain from my intuitive psychic brain because I started developing both. I started really learning and studying astrology while I was going, you know, learning under the spiritualist tradition, mediumship and channeling and um, esoteric uh, studies and getting into hermeticism and and. Um, and so I really sort of I, I saw them both as one, as 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 they formed together inside of my own psyche. Um, and so when I look at a chart, I can feel into what's what's the juicy stuff. What is the big? What is what is the thing that you're that you're working on right now? But even if I weren't able to do that, I could look at what transits you have going on. So transits being the planets in the heavens today and how they aspect your natal chart. Um, or I could look at progressions, which are a way that we advance the chart. Um, and, and again, astrology cycles. So your natal chart shows a template for like the starting point and all transits and all astrological cycles activate points in your natal chart. And those, the way that they activate them are going to be very similar to previous cycles in your life. Let's look at Saturn, for example. So Saturn is a 29 year cycle. Every seven years, Saturn applies a hard aspect. So a square conjunction or an opposition to your natal Saturn. And at seven years old, you're developing your sense of self, understanding rules and limits and learning and figuring out what am I good at? Your ego structure is coming together. And so every Saturn cycle after that first Saturn square presents themes of your seven-year-old self. So you get to be 14, 15 years old, and now it's like, I want to break free. I want to, you know, evolve more into my adolescent self. 
and you still have to go back to that seven-year-old sense of yourself. Um, and so that's one example of how it's really like literal. Uh, these, these astrological symbols play out very literally. So you don't have to, 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 to know what those are. Now I can bring in my psychic awareness, but, um, but I could also just, and I, I don't know how to do it without bringing my psychic awareness, mm -hmm. but, but that's more of like, that comes in with how do you heal or, you know, where do you go or what possibilities is this going to open up? I could add to what Rachel's okay. saying, because I've, I've thought about it a lot. I, and, you know, uh, Yvonne, my wife is, she's a Jungian analyst and an astrologer, but she, she is quite, um, quite intuitive. And, uh, and I think, uh, like Rachel, I think, first of all, astrology, the, the, the practice of any um, profound symbol system in, in helps develop one's intuition, one's intuitive capacities. That's just, it, it just comes with the practice. Mm -hmm. But uh, then there are people who have an unusual um, kind of psychic uh, porousness, you know, uh, uh, mm -hmm. an ability. You talked about it at the beginning, uh, Michael, about you know your your openness to recognizing how psi phenomena and telepathy, uh, clairvoyance are are, are real. Uh, and some people have that gift more than you know many average astrologers or even excellent astrologers. Mm -hmm. And what happens, I think, when a person has both the astrological. Um, uh, uh, practice and and knowledge and the um and the psychic ability is that first of all that out of the multivalent range of possibilities that a particular uh transit or natal aspect can you know as an astrologer can give rise to this kind of rainbow spectrum of possible uh ways in which those archetypes can come through and uh the psychic component comes in and says i think it's my sense is that it's in it's in this part of the spectrum that uh the the symbolic that the archetypes are going to come through this is my sense and they they don't even have to be conscious or rachel doesn't even have to be conscious like okay now my psychic ability is kicking in it just speaks to her as as she's looking at the transit as she's looking at the natal aspect she it's the thing that intuitively comes to mind. It happens to all of us, even the you know less psychically um, gifted. You know, when I'm giving a lecture, I'll give an example. It'll just come to mind, and the so often a person in the um, in the audience will say, you know, I I was just thinking of that, and then you said it. Well, I think there's a field that we're unconsciously in touch with all the time, and you don't have to be. Uh, conscious of psychic powers to be picking up signals from your audience or from your the person you're talking to as uh, what out of this range of symbolic possibilities that I'm seeing here um, is most relevant to this person. So that's one way in which I could see um, the two working together. That, that's really helpful. Um, I, I really want to thank you both. Let me just start there. Um, I was uh, saying to Rick, and Rachel certainly knows this, that I had no expectation I would be looking into astrology. It was not on my list of things to do. And then I did this reading with Rachel, and we did her spiritual biography, and 
the conversation with her and then the conversation with her and Yvonne, now the one with you. And Caroline Casey is who you know and, and uh, uh, admires you greatly, is going to do the next one with us. And because it has been challenging for me for all the reasons that we've described, what I noticed in holding the tension about how this works was that I was being taken deeper into the mystery just by holding the tension, you know, Mm -hmm. and I began to have dreams about it. And last night, I mentioned this uh, to Rick before we came on. I had a dream in which two friends of mine, a woman in Bolinas named Hawk Weston and uh, a friend of mine who started Healthcare Without Harm with us called Gary Cohen. And I was trying to figure out how I could acquire or ensure in perpetuity a crystalline cave that was going down into the earth. That was the dream that I had last night. And I have no question in my mind that that was about this conversation today, you know, mm-hmm. and um and the cave was very precious. Now, the fact Cohen, which, you know, is priest and the Hebrew tradition, and then there's this resonance to the, the field uh, that uh, was purchased, uh, you know, for a burial site in the Hebrew Bible. But um, I just have no question about that. And then the other piece for me that just came into focus was for years I had looked for a gravestone for us, because I wanted to pick out my own gravestone. And there's a stonemason's yard on my way out to Commonweal, where I often stopped and looked. And about eight months ago, I finally found it. And it was this almost spherical piece of black granite that weighs almost a ton Mm -hmm. that I managed to get transferred to our gravesite in Bolinas. And now when my wife and I go for you know, lunch or something, we'll often stop at our gravesite and hang out with our stone. But what I realized, and I only realized it after I had the dream, it's so obvious, after I had the dream about um, the cave, the crystalline cave, is that this gravestone is a perfect iconic representation of a planet, right? It's, it's it's, It's a planet. It's a little micro planet. And so, there are all these resonances that even as I struggle with the questions mm. uh, and, and so, and I, I'm very comfortable with my cultural anthropology being that just marvels at the unbelievable richness of the symbol system. Right. Mm-hmm. And Rick, actually you come toward it when you say, uh, you know, that the Vedic and the Western astrologies are actually quite close. And then you say by some combination of divination and empirical observation. But if we were to expand that field into all the different astrological configurations that people have had over time, you know, they're not all closely correlated, right? There are many different different ones, I guess I'd say. Right, because they had different knowledge of, you know, a lot of them just hadn't even distinguished which the planets from each exactly. other. You know? Yeah. yeah. So I think where I find myself with immense gratitude to you both is that it's important to me 
to stay honest with the questions, you know, not to prematurely sink into uh, complete um, acceptance. And yet, as I sit with the questions and they keep bringing me deeper, um, uh, more and more is revealed. Let me just put it that way. And you beautifully said, Rick, that in some way we don't choose astrology, that astrology is a kind of an eruption in our lives or it it comes to us. It's a visitation, right? It's a, it's, visitation. It's, it's a, it's a goddess chooses to come into exactly. your life rather yeah. than the other way around. So, uh, Rachel, your last words. Yeah, Could- your dream. I just want to talk about your dream for a second. Yeah. So the going into this deep cave. Yeah. One of the beautiful insights that I'm having right now through our conversation, Rick, you talked about how, you know, spirituality and and the worldview has all been about transcendence up and out of the body and out of the human experience into the divine, which is considered to be separate from ourselves. And so it's kind of like an, you know, an as above, so below, sort of like as above detached from so below. Um, And I think what astrology is doing right now um, at this time in in our history is it saying that which is above, let's bring it down below. And so it's it's uh, it's giving us the ability to embody our connection with the divine in a way that we haven't, like we haven't for centuries. Um, and I had this insight when I was studying uh, Buddhism, tantric Buddhism in theology school, that our that that the new form of transcendence that we were all moving into this new paradigm of transcendence through the heart, transcendence through the body, that you could access mystical experiences in the physical form, and um, and so I I think that that's where we're moving, and and that's one of the gifts that astrology can offer us is bringing the heavens down here to the earth. Thank you, Rachel. Rick, final thoughts. I'm 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 grateful that you. I mean, your your own um, spiritual quest and you know staying true to your uh, intellectual um, values and convictions, you know, and 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 at the same time um, being ready to 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 risk them at at the paradigm boundary line and uh, to with the possibility of opening up a, a new horizon is really admirable. And um, I'm glad uh, Rachel provided the the kind of very necessary initiatory experience for you that kind of has opened up a path that uh, I, in, in some ways, I think you're, you're a, a model of uh, what I think um, many uh, will be probably going through as we as we open up to the fact that there are more things in heaven and earth than we're dreamt of in our previous philosophy. So true. Well, Rachel Lang, Rick Tarnas, thank you both beyond words for being with us. And Rick, how how fitting that we come back together fifteen years later. Uh, to have a conversation about cosmos and psyche again. One of the first ones we did with the new school with you and now uh, 15 years later. Thank you so much. Thank you. And just one more reminder, if anyone has not seen Changing of the Gods, it is a stunning documentary series. And Rick, 
you just, it's so brilliant. And what you've done for astrology and for the world is incredible. So thank you for all of your dedication, all of your wisdom and for sharing it with us all. Well, that's very kind Absolutely. of you, Rachel. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye, everyone. Bye. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Richard Tarnas, Rachel Lang, and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. Our theme music was performed by Debbie Daly. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, Vimeo, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening.